0: Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, March 21st, 2019. Happy first
1: day of spring. Winning foreclosure cases. Sometimes it's the homeowner. It reminds me of an old story in Spain, which I won't repeat, but some of you will know the reference. If it's the homeowner who wins, it's only because the homeowner defended aggressively and the bank or servicer had nothing. And so, in a way, this show is devoted to the story of nothing. Tonight we talk about how the banks and the lawyers are getting away with it and what we can do to force them to prove their case and be held accountable when they present false claims. Remember, you can always come back and listen to the show again or send it to a friend by going to blogtalkradio.com and looking up the Neil Garfield Show and selecting this one or any other one that you like. First, a little somewhat related news and comment about an article on the New York decision of Bank of New York Mellon versus Dew Dunn. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I might not be. Uh, uh, decided within the last couple of days, 2019 uh, WL 114973, second department. Uh, it's, it's important. I posted an article relating to this decision a couple of days ago. In Bank of New York Mellon versus Duh Dunn, uh, that's D I E U D O N N E. The appellate division, uh, division in New York, determined that a mortgage is accelerated by the filing of a complaint to foreclose the mortgage, with that ha- where the mortgage has the election to accelerate, and most mortgages do. So they don't have to formally state that they're accelerating. They merely the mere filing of the complaint is acceleration, according to the New York Court. This is something the banks were fearing. This is true even though a provision in the mortgage preserves the borrower's right to make instalment payments rather than the full debt. The context of this decision was the statute of limitations. In essence, it goes against the Bartram rule in Florida. The ruling essentially bars action on an alleged default after the statute expires. New York does not recognize the twisted Florida rule in which an implied deceleration takes place when a second suit is filed. That is the Bartram rule, and I don't think it'll ever stand the test of time. done will reverberate nationally uh, as well as in New York. It may also create pressure on states like Florida that invent crazy doctrines that will haunt them in the future. This is not rocket science, folks. If a bank lends money to a borrower and the borrower can't or won't pay the the usual bank will sue them in no more than six months after they've given some time to find a workout. So by regulation, custom, and practice in the lending and banking industry. The New York rule is simple. It's easy to understand. And it has a very long history, including what existed throughout the country before the era of securitization if the bank waits more than six years after it has accelerated the entire amount due the bank itself is foreclosed now in other states it's five years in other states it's 10 years you have to look at your state to know the number if it wait but this is going to affect many, many states who have not adopted the Florida rule. If it waited six years, it's simply too late, and there was probably a reason, but that's just me. The New York Law Journal article by Adam Swanson and Jesse Boneros says that, quote, in the throes of the Great Recession, talking about 2008, many foreclosure actions were commenced and ultimately dismissed or abandoned. Among the causes was an overwhelming volume, fluctuating laws, and new regulatory requirements. I would add that among the causes was also aggressively uh, homeowners aggressively de- defending against parties who were appointed to pursue the claim even though they had no claim. Back to the quote. Financial institutions are now seeking to foreclose those loans and finding that they are barred by the statute of limitations because those old lawsuits accelerated the mortgages years earlier. And this is still continuing with the quote. Courts are giving out free houses, but not to homeowners, to real estate ex- speculators who are paying pennies to the homeowner for the, right to, uh, for the right to fight foreclosure. So the moral of that story is that the right to fight foreclosures is a marketable commodity with considerable value that can be measured by the equity in the house if the mortgage is removed or deemed unenforceable. Just think about a speculator who pays $10,000 or even $50,000 to a homeowner and takes over the deed and then correctly defends a foreclosure based upon the statute of limitations in this example What he gets is a house free of any encumbrance, which he can then sell or rent or whatever he wants, without paying anyone. I might add that part of the reason why some foreclosure cases linger for 10 years or more is to avoid the statute of limitations problem which they all know was the rule before the laws got twisted when the banks wrecked the financial state system in 2008. What the article leaves out is that not all homeowners sell their right to defend. Many homeowners defend themselves and win, just as I've been saying here for years and years. It's always buried in settlements that have a confidentiality clause. And it leaves out that Boney Mellon is listed as plaintiff but never receives any remedy, even if it wins. That's because the money from the sale of the foreclosed property goes to parties who also don't own the debt. Boney is like MERS. It's a naked nominee. Now to the topic at hand and the title of the show. In the case of Abduski, probably Abduski. O-B-D-U-S-K-E-Y, versus McCarthy and Halthus, a hated foreclosure mill. It was decided yesterday, March 20th, 2019, a unanimous but very ambivalent Supreme Court of the United States decided that lawyers are not debt collectors, at least in non-judicial states. In doing so, they undermined they, being the Supreme Court, undermine the due diligence requirement in the bar rules of ev- the bar rules of every jurisdiction. So, like the Florida bar, the New York bar, etc., they all require a lawyer to perform enough investigation to assure that the client is real and has at least some arguable claim. Several justices opined that Congress should clear up the ambiguity that they were perceiving in this case. I don't think that ambiguity really existed, but uh, I'll grant that there is a way in which to interpret the statute so that the ambiguity arises. I think we have plenty of case law that says if that's what you're doing, then there is no ambiguity. The case was seen as a fundamental challenge to the whole non judicial statutory scheme adopted in 32 states, in which property subject to a deed of trust could be sold privately without judicial process. And that's because the driving factor behind the non judicial sale was a law firm like McCarthy and Holthorpe. We've called out the problem as a substantive and procedural one. What is more important and least understood is that the virtual immunity now granted to lawyers provides banks and services with an impenetrable vehicle through which they can continue to commit widespread fraud to the detriment of borrowers, investors, taxpayers, the financial system, and society at large. I'm broadcasting live from DeVal County, Florida. This show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of your continuing donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you, readers of the blog. Thank you. We couldn't go on without you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the Donate button on the homepage of the blog or call 954-451-1230 and leave a message telling us who you are and pledging whatever you think you can afford. We'll contact you. If this show has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows which occurs without any payment or compensation or other support to us. If that is value to you, then please chip in, make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. The holding in Obdusky is that, quote, a business engaged in no more than non judicial foreclosure proceedings is not a debt collector. Under the FDCPA, that's the Federal Debt Collector's Procedures Act, despite voting unanimously, several justices said they have doubts whether the ruling was justified. What they were all stating is that the FDCPA left open a crack through which Wall Street banks have run an entire business model involving trillions of dollars that amounted to no more than a Ponzi scheme. The specific holding unequivocally means that as far as the FDCPA is concerned, lawyers have no duty to investigate whether their client or the claim is real. So it doesn't make any difference if the client is real. It doesn't make any difference if the claim is real. That's where I think the holding of the court is wrong and contrary to the rules of conduct for attorneys. The Supreme Court... Members all agreed that the enforcement of a security interest, like a mortgage or deed of trust, is different than the enforcement of a debt or note. In plain language, the conservative judges were searching for a way to protect the lawyers and the banks, while the more progressive judges thought that the wording of the statute was potentially ambiguous. It is decisions like this that makes the practice of law so maddening. Where the foreclosure mill initiates foreclosure, I still think there are claims available for fraud, misrepresentation and negligence. Where a new foreclosure mill is substituted during foreclosure, I think that the options are li- limited or non-existent or certainly narrowed. But liability under the FDCPA is being narrowed, under almost out of existence. For, uh, even though lawyers may be guilty of misconduct, the fact remains that none of the bar associations are willing to investigate, much less find probable cause, of violation of ethics by foreclosure mills, despite clear and convincing evidence in the public domain that they rely upon false statements, fabricated document and f- documents, and forged signatures. Substantively, most such sales are based on false premises. That is, that the claimant is a beneficiary under a deed of trust, which in simple language means it's the owner of the debt. That simply is not true in nearly all non-judicial foreclosures. The party named as the beneficiary is not the owner of the debt and therefore, under the state law, is not a beneficiary. Procedurally, the flaw in the non-judicial scheme is that a challenge to the foreclosure puts the burden of proof on the borrower who has no direct foundation, no direct knowledge of the foundation of the claim, and can only interpret what is available. The contrary is true in judicial states. 32 states have nonjudicial or some form of nonjudicial that leaves 28 states, I'm sorry, 18 states that in which suit must be filed in order to foreclose. So in the judicial states, the bank, the lender, or the pretender lender, as I have said, must file a claim, state that it is the right party to bring the claim, state how it's the right party, and state the claim. In non-judicial foreclosure, all of that is not necessary. All you have to do is give notice of the sale. Notice of default and then notice of sale. So when challenged, I have always maintained that due process under the United States Constitution requires a reorientation of the parties, or realignment of the parties, such that the supposed lender or supposed beneficiary under the deed of trust must now state that it is the owner of the debt, or it represents the owner of the debt, and the owner of the debt, the beneficiary, is identified as whoever it is. and then state the nature of the claim. That puts everything on an equal footing with due process, the same as judicial states. But that's not the way it works. And that the the courts continue to avoid that because non-judicial is so handy and so expedient in cases where the homeowner is not going to contest. But I'm talking about where they do contest, they should be on a level playing field. Many people are asking and apparently making inquiry to bar associations who have turned a blind eye to attorneys who are filing claims without there being any owner of the claim present. That's a weird situation. It's like filing a slip and fall case for a slip and fall that may have occurred or a slip that may have occurred, but the fall didn't and the person who slipped and fell is nowhere to be seen, but the lawyer is filing the case anyway, on behalf of somebody else who wants to collect because, after all, somebody slipped and fell, that's what's happening in the courts today. That should not be happening according to existing bar rules and ethics. The potential for moral hazard on this is absolutely horrendous, and it's been horrendous. I would say that millions of foreclosures never had to happen. I'm not saying necessarily that all these homeowners should necessarily have ended up with a free house. But in view of the fact that the banks collected $20 for every dollar that they loaned, it seems to me that giving the homeowner a free house is just giving them a share of the bounty that the banks created. I know there's some circular logic in there, but I'm willing to debate it with somebody who actually knows. So this means that attorneys can invent claims or pretend to represent a rogue trust which is a term that's been coined uh, by uh, Campbell. I wrote about this in a, uh, uh, an article on my blog, uh, I think last week, or a couple of weeks ago. Uh, or to uh, invent claims or pretend to represent other fictitious entities, and seek collection and even forced sale of homes, autos, equipment, etc. So the attorney can bring the claim even though there's nobody named who is going to get the remedy. Let that sink in for a second. What stops the attorney from simply claiming the proceeds for himself? Nothing. Nothing. But in order to create the appearance of propriety, the attorney didn't then go to his friend, Joe, might be another attorney, and say, start a company and we'll share the proceeds on this. And Joe says, that's a good idea. I think I'll do the same thing. And the attorney starts up a company for Joe's cases, which are also unlawful, illegal, immoral, fattening everything else there's nothing to stop unscrupulous attorneys from pocketing the proceeds or getting their share through what appears to be attorney's fees from a fictional character that is created by a friendly but supposedly unrelated entity that is in on the scheme such decisions immunizing lawyers have gone too far I agree that lawyers and litigants should be protected by litigation privilege. I absolutely agree with that. There should be no chilling effect on the ability of lawyers and litigants to say what they think that they need to say out of passion or whatever in the courtroom. There should be no right of action for what they say and do that. But I also believe that abuse of litigation privilege is abuse of process. An abusive process is a recognized claim, and that claim should be recognized. And what lawyers are doing now is abusing litigation privilege in order to lie. Lie for themselves and lie for clients who are not even present in the courtroom. I agree that lawyers who have questionable clients with questionable claims may still file such claims with immunity, but there is a difference between questionable and just plain false claims. By now, there isn't a lawyer in the country who doesn't know that the trust doesn't exist, that even if it did exist, it doesn't own the debt, and that even if the foreclosure was successful, the alleged trust wouldn't get any money out of it. No lawyer familiar with the current foreclosures believes that investors are getting the money either. Foreclosure mill attorneys are using a thinly veiled scheme to protect themselves in the interest of making hundreds of millions of dollars per year collectively, billions really. They don't ask and the bank doesn't tell. The lawyer doesn't ask because he gets the assignment of the case electronically on his desktop. That implies that the claim exists. And what the lawyer says is, my faith in my client was enough for me to believe, honestly believe, that the named claimant existed and that the named claim also exist existed, but by now they know that that is not true, but they're relying on this false presumption in order to cover their tracks, because if in fact they did know that there was no claimant and there was no claim then there's no question that the bar rules would apply so the assignment of the case comes from a servicer like aquan meanwhile Aquin's only claim to authority comes from a pooling and servicing agreement they say that was never completely where the pooling and servicing agreement was never completed in the most major important detail. There is no loan schedule. You never see a pulling a servicing agreement that the servicer has uploaded to sec.gov without any review or approval process or anything. It's more like Dropbox or Box.com or something. Um, you, you, You never see a mortgage loan schedule that is included in the PDF that is uploaded to sec.gov. And that's because it didn't exist. It was created later, and it was created later multiple times in multiple variations. And we've proven that successfully in court. In some cases, many times the judge will be resistant to allowing you to prove that because they don't want to hear this. But it's true, and they should want to hear it because what they think is protecting the financial system is destroying it. And that's why people are so pissed off. So ACWIN is claiming authority from an entity that doesn't exist based upon a document that was never completed. I agree that a lawyer representing a debt collector should not be held to be a debt collector. But if the lawyer has no actual client who is a debt owner and no client who is a debt collector for an identified debt owner, then the attorney is a debt collector and is violating the FDCPA every time he or she acts because the attorney is pursuing a non-existent claim on behalf of a non-existent non-owner of the debt. The logic is undeniable. So the Supreme Court of the United States, in my unhumble opinion, was half right in their discussion of the relationship between lawyer misconduct and the FDCPA. But the rest of the story belies, 90. belies their intent and, more importantly, belies the intent of Congress, who passed the law, the FDCPA. It opens, this decision opens yet another door a moral hazard in a world where moral hazard is expanding. That's it. Thanks for listening. Visit the blog, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast.